are listening to True Crime Fiction, feeding your addiction to the best of the written and the spoken word in crime. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as £1 at patreon.com slash truecrimefiction. Joining the police force is not a move to be taken lightly. Police people need to be ready to deal with anything and will often be interacting with the public in what may be some of the worst moments of their lives, not conditions under which many of us shine, as well as seeing some of the worst behaviour which humanity can offer up. It's not a given that anyone who joins the police would have to take on a long-term acting gig, But it does happen. We've all seen it on many TV shows. The female cop who has to pretend to be a sex worker for a while. The male cop who may go undercover in a gang. In the podcast, Mr. Little Meets Mr. Big, we're hearing about undercover operations. But we're talking about something bigger, more sprawling and intricate. What makes the Mr. Big Sting different from those other examples is the dedication which the police put into it. When they find someone who they are pretty convinced has committed a crime, but do not have enough evidence to arrest them and take them to court, Mr. Big comes into play. The central example in this podcast, Mr. Little Meets Mr. Big, was a case from New Zealand. Brett Hall, a drug dealer, had been murdered and police suspected his friend, David Little, of committing the crime. So they started an elaborate ruse to try to gain a confession. There is a prize giveaway for taking part in a survey and David wins. He gets a fishing trip. On the fishing trip, he meets another man and they get on really well. Everything feels good. They get on so well, this man indicates to David that he could be the kind of guy that one of his friends is looking for, for a job. It seems like easy money, and David does it. Then comes more jobs, all well paid. It's not just the job. David is taken out to fancy restaurants, taken on holidays, the gang welcoming him into their midst all the time telling him that he's a great guy. David carries on doing jobs, thinking he's found a community like family, and as time goes by, the gang members tell David that he could get the nod for a permanent job, with the cars, the holidays, the good life that entails. The only thing is, David has to be completely honest with the boss before he can get the nod, and they mean completely honest. The boss has a dirty cop on the payroll, and he will find out everything the police believe David is guilty of. So, if David is honest about what he has done, and also, crucially, where the bodies are buried, the boss will not only accept him, but will help him get rid of the evidence. It all feels too good to be true, because it is. 
It's essentially the first 20 minutes of Goodfellas, which is unequivocally the best gangster film of all time. It takes an inordinate amount of skill and acting from the police and must cost a lot of money to pull off. However, the big question that surrounds the Mr. Big Sting is, is it fair? Are you actually likely to get a safe conviction out of it? Only three countries in the world operates Mr. Big, Canada, where it originated, and Australia and New Zealand. In Australia and New Zealand, these operations have been held up by the courts. It feels unlikely that any such procedure would come to the UK, mainly because I can remember the conviction of Colin Stagg. Rachel Nickell was only 23 when she was stabbed to death on Wimbledon Common, and the murder was considered more horrific and stuck in the public imagination because she was killed in front of her two-year-old son. A psychologist made a profile of who they thought the murderer would be. After a tip to Crime Watch, a programme which now is no longer broadcast but used to appeal to the public for help in catching criminals, Colin Stagg is identified as a possible suspect. Stagg was 29 at the time, and by his own admission, immature, and seen as a quiet loner. He walked his dog on the common Rachel was killed on. The psychologist, working with the police, devised an elaborate plan to get him to confess, which involved a female officer pretending she was attracted to Stagg, and through phone calls, letters and meetings, extracting violent sexual fantasies from him, and hopefully a confession. Over five months, Stagg was pushed further and further by the police, who even told him that she wished he had killed Rachel Nickel. But Stagg would not break. Becoming more and more desperate, the police even plotted to kidnap his dog, thinking Stagg would do anything to get him back. Stagg was arrested and charged because he'd revealed things about the murder scene that only the murderer could have known. When Stagg came to trial, the judge ruled that the evidence from the entrapment would not be included, leading to the case collapsing and to Stagg's acquittal. In the aftermaths, both Stagg and the female officer involved sued the police for psychological damage, and the psychologist involved was charged with professional misconduct by the British Psychological Society. What about the evidence only the killer could have known? Turns out that psychologically a lot of people can pick up on unspoken signals that work as clues, meaning that sometimes a suspect can know exactly what the police want to hear. Progress in DNA meant that after further testing, the police were able to identify Robert Knapper as the killer. He was already serving time for another murder and was also connected to a series of rapes. The Independent Police Complaints Commission identified mistakes and errors which had allowed Napper to remain free after killing Rachel Nickel, and had he been caught after murdering Nickel, there were others' lives who could have been saved. The case is now a cautionary tale for those who would employ similar tactics, and seen as reason for caution around applying psychological profiles too stringently. More recently, the spy cops scandal, where police officers, male and female, infiltrated groups, many of which were not criminal, but pursuing social or environmental justice, 
I went as far as forming long-term relationships with women and men in the groups and fathering children. Such deep deception and the implication it has for their partners and the children involved shocked the country. Because of both these cases, it makes Mr. Big Style's sting operating in the UK highly unlikely. In New Zealand, however, where the Mr. Little Meets Mr. Big podcast focuses, trial judges have allowed the evidence gathered from these operations into trials, and there have been convictions based on them. It does, however, open up a host of questions which the podcast, hosted by journalist and lawyer Stephen Price, delves into. We are asked if we think a Mr. Big-style operation is fair or just. I imagine that for many people, playing fair with criminals is not seen as a high priority. Here we can look at another chapter from British crime history – The Confession, true crime which has been dramatised by ITV, follows Detective Steve Fulcher, who, when he arrests Christopher Halliwell for the abduction of Sean O'Callaghan, does not know if Sean is alive or dead. Instead of taking Halliwell to the police station for questioning, he takes him to a nearby Iron Age fort. For listeners who are not familiar with the British landscape, there is a lot of Iron Age forts. They mostly have great views as they tend to be built on defensive positions. Therefore, when you are at the top, there is a sense of being above not just the land but life. A kind of feeling of separation from the everyday which may allow people's barriers to come down. Over several hours, Fulcher and Halliwell talk. Halliwell eventually tells Fulcher where Sean is buried, and once they are there, confesses to also murdering Becky Godden. Halliwell hadn't abducted Sean out of the blue, but had possibly been abducting and killing women for decades. He'd even studied forensics to help evade the police. Where is the controversy, I hear you ask? Fulcher had not followed the police code of conduct enshrined in legislation and known as PACE in regards to the caution. Halliwell claims that Fulcher had threatened his family, so his confession was under duress, and as it was not recorded, we can never know the truth of this. The evidence in regards to the second murder was ruled as admissible. Fulcher is found guilty of gross misconduct, and now no longer works with the police. Like Mr. Little meets Mr. Big, this case brings up questions. Fulcher claims that the unique circumstances meant that there should have been some leeway given. He thinks that had Sean been alive, he would not have got that information in an interrogation room. Mr. Big's stings are often used when the police do not believe there is another way to get a confession. At the end of the day... If criminals are caught, does it matter how it happens? From the Fulcher story, the answer seems to be yes. In Britain, at least, there has been a decision that how we do things is as important as the results. We know that people falsely confess to things, and at least in the case of the Mr. Big Sting, if people are having wealth and status they've never had dangled in front of them, it is conceivable that they would make a false confession, 
especially as they aren't exactly speaking on the record. We all like to think when it comes to these kind of decisions that we would be the kind of people who would stand strong and not swerve from our principles, not falsely confess. But this is a viewpoint which is a little naive. Price tells us that on one Mr Big Sting, a woman who the police were trying to get to confess scoffed at the kind of people who would fall for a Mr Big Sting, not realising that it was exactly what was happening to her at the time. It appears to me there's another facet to this question, though. While we might say that the police should do whatever it takes to get a confession and arrest people who are guilty, if we hold the rights of those who may be criminals in such disregard, why were the police concerned with who murdered Brett Hall? Hall was a drug dealer and had done time in jail, It was suspected that he'd restarted dealing, which means he was probably actively criminal at the time of his death. If the police don't have to play fair with criminals, why should they care about them at all? Why didn't they just chalk this up to a drug-related death and move on to something else? For me, the answer is, of course, that we should care about every murder. If we start thinking of some people as less deserving of justice than others, then we start on the slippery slope of denying others humanity, which is not a place where you want to pick up momentum. The thing about humanity, though, is we all have it to exactly the same amount. No one is better or worse. We are all equally human which means that if we care about every murder because no one has the right to take another's life, then do we not have a duty to care about those who have not yet been found guilty of murder? Because when we send innocent people to jail, we are taking part of their life too. You have been listening to True Crime Fiction, the podcast that is feeding your addiction to all things crime. You can find our website at true-crime-fiction.com, on Twitter at true underscore crime underscore fic, on Facebook and Instagram as True Crime Fiction. Please rate and review on the podcast app of your choice. Music is by Kitty Kitty Meow Meow.